0: Most of us have had the experience of having an annoying jingle stuck in our head. Perhaps it's an old ad for mashed potato.
1: Or mash, get smash.
0: Maybe it's a commercial for tea. You only get an ooh with typhoo. Or even a song by Queen guitarist Brian May for Ford. These jingles are annoying, but they are nothing like what I dealt with. I spent years of my childhood with this awful Frosties ad stuck in my head. I can hear the sound of Frosties me this ad haunted me. Not only did it stick in my head for literally decades, it made no sense. Why on earth would you serve Frosties, a sugary cornflake cereal, on a plate? See, I thought it made absolutely no sense, but then I chatted to today's guest. Today, Richard Shotton, author of The Choice Factory and Illusion of Choice, explains to me why there might be some sense in that Frosty's ad after all. All that coming up on today's episode of Nudge. Success Story, hosted by Scott D. Clary, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. Success Story features Q&A sessions with successful business leaders, keynote presentations, and conversations on sales, marketing, business, startups, and entrepreneurship. Back in December last year, Scott did an episode with marketing legend Seth Godin on how to hire well, which I think is well worth tuning into. So listen to Success Story wherever you get your podcasts. Rhyming has an interesting effect on us. I imagined we'd see rhyming phrases and non rhyming phrases as sort of interchangeable. Yet psychologists suggest otherwise. In fact, there's evidence to suggest that rhyming words are more believable. Here's Richard Shotton, founder of Astro10, a behavioural science consultancy, and he explains to me the studies behind Rhyme.
1: There's a wonderful um, series of studies around what's other than as the Rhyme as Reason Effect or the heuristic, and these studies come from 2000 and they are run by two psychologists, uh, Matthew McGlone and, apologies, I'm not 100% sure on the pronunciation, but Jessica Toffigbash. I think, I think is how you say it. And they were interested in Rhyme and its effect on perceived truthfulness so they recruit a group of people and people are given a list of fake proverbs and some people might see a proverb like woes unite foes other people might see a proverb like woes unite enemies and people are given a long list of these proverbs. they then have to rate the accuracy and believability of the proverb and when McGlone looks at those ratings, he sees a fascinating pattern, which is that the rhyming proverbs are rated 17%, more believable, more accurate than the non-rhyming proverbs. Now, the key point here is the underlying message and content of those proverbs is exactly the same thing. Foes and enemies are just synonyms. So the it's the style of how that those words are, are displayed which is affecting truthfulness, not just the content.
0: Now, this is an important point. McClone showed participants very similar phrases. Phrases like, life is mostly strife versus life is mostly struggle. Variety prevents satiety versus variation prevents satiety. And what sobriety conceals, alcohol reveals versus what sobriety conceals, alcohol unmasks. It wasn't the meaning that made these phrases appear more believable and accurate. It was the rhyme.
1: Intriguingly, when McGlone questions people as to why they thought some proverbs were believable and some weren't, and he directs their attention to the fact that some of those proverbs rhymed, I think it's everyone in the study, bar one person, denies the rhyme had any effect on their rating of accuracy and believability. So, an interesting study in that rhyme boosts perceived believability but people don't necessarily believe that about themselves they think they rate the statement on its content they dismiss the idea that it's the rhyme that's important now what the psychologists argue is that there is a conflation of the ease of processing and truthfulness you know, rhymes have this certain um, uh, format in which they are you know, very easy on the ear. They're very easy for us to, to process, to understand. And the argument from the psychologist is that is mistaken for truthfulness. That I think is interesting for a, a couple of reasons. Firstly, the history of advertising. If you go back to the 1930s onwards, till about the 1980s, there are loads of rhyming strap lines don't be vague ask for ask for hague um uh, beans means hinds. maybe um uh, less bother with a, than a hover um, once you pop you can't stop yeah there are loads of rhyming strap lines but once you get started getting to the 1990s the early 2000s that 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 volume really dries up now that's not speculation a colleague and i went down to the newspaper archives we looked at loads of papers going back to the 1970s, and we saw a very uh, steady and dramatic decline in the number of ads that you had a rhyming strapline. So you've got this interesting situation in which rhyme boosts believability, but it's being used less and less by advertisers.
0: Rhyming doesn't only boost believability, it also boosts trust and inspires action. In 2013, researchers from the University of Oslo and the Norwegian University of Science and Technology created slogans for two fictitious brands. These two brands supposedly sold clothes and a diet course. The researchers created two types of slogans, ones that rhymed and ones that didn't rhyme. Psychologists showed these slogans to 183 participants, with half seeing the rhyming slogans and the other half seeing the non-rhyming versions. When questioned, The subjects stated that they rated the rhyming slogans as 22% more trustworthy and that participants were also 10% more willing to try the brand after seeing the rhyming slogans. This is interesting, but you might dismiss believability as being unimportant to some marketers. I don't really need to make you believe that ads that rhyme stand the test of time. However, I do want you to listen to this episode and it seems that giving this episode a rhyming title, like I have, may have made some of you more willing to give it a listen. It's not just believability and trustworthiness that rhyming improves. Richard has run studies to show that
1: rhyme boosts memorability. Rhyme also delivers on some of the other key attributes marked as one. Uh, I did a pilot study and it was just amongst agency staff, so going to treat this as a, a working hypothesis rather than a, rather than a fact. But we re-ran the kulturistic study, but rather than asking people whether they believed the proverb, we gave them the list of proverbs in the morning. And then in the afternoon, uh, say eight hours later, we brought them back in uh, to our, to our lab spec grand. It was a meeting room. We brought them back into the meeting room uh, and we asked them what they could remember. And people were uh, twice as likely to remember the rhyming proverb as the non-rhyming proverb. So yes, Keats boosts believability, but it also boosts memorability. So you have two key criteria that Keats Heuristic works really well on, which makes you think this is crazy that advertisers aren't using it more. Now, in terms of why that might be the case, I think there's an element that, unfortunately, consultants, whether it's agency staff Um, or or consultancies, they are not just interested in what makes for effective advertising. They're interested in what makes them look intelligent, what makes them look sophisticated, what can signal their expertise to their peers and and then their clients. And unfortunately, because Rhyme doesn't feel sophisticated, it ends up being used far less than the, the evidence would suggest it should be. Richard's not
0: wrong. His evidence suggests that the number of print ads with a prominent rhyme has more than halved in 30 years. But is it really because marketers are over-educated and too sophisticated? Surely some are less obsessed and willing to
1: test. There's a fascinating question around, well, why is rhyme being used less? Maybe it's there's an argument from Taleb, which is, if you don't have, in his words, skin in the game, So, i.e., you don't own the product, you're not directly recompensed according to that product sales. If you are um, paid according to your advice, he says it tends to complication because you need to show your sophistication to justify your your fees. So there's an argument from Taleb. It's around um, that um, distance from actual performance, that distance from having skin in the game. I wonder if there's a second argument of, and I've not kind of thought of this before but I wonder if it goes hand in hand with the almost professionalization of marketing you go back to the 60s 70s and this was a lot of the creatives weren't coming from university degrees um it was much more of a uh, a broad talent pool people were drawing on uh, a lot of people hadn't had that university education i wonder if you've come as a copywriter and now you've had a university education. You've got your you know, first from Cambridge English. Are you really going to recommend a technique that you see in uh, nursery rhymes and storybooks? It might feel almost below your degree of intelligence to recommend uh, something like rhyme. But that, of course, is completely the wrong way to look at it. You know, The, the, the ads we make shouldn't be about our own self-aggrandizement. They should be about what is effective.
0: This resonates. You only have to look at the pretentious slogans touted by car brands or the nonsensical ads dished out to sell perfume to see how few ads focus on effectiveness. Yet psychology reveals that messages can be more memorable, more believable and more trustworthy with simple tweaks. Rhyme isn't the only style of language that has this effect, by the way. Alliteration alters our attention also. In 2022, Hamish Bromley, Joanna Stanley and Richard Shotton ran a study to see if alliteration could be as effective as rhyme. Just like in McGlone's study, they found 10 relatively unknown alliterating proverbs and then rewrote them in a non-alliterating style. So, for example, sleep softens sorrows, that's the alliterating proverb, versus sleep lessens worries, that's the non-alliterating version. Some of the others included great losses are great lessons versus great losses are valuable teachings, or courage kills complications versus courage erases difficulty. These proverbs have the same meaning, the only difference was the alliteration. Participants were shown 10 proverbs, five from each list, and were then asked to rate how believable each was on a nine point scale. Turns out the alliterating proverbs are ranked as 7% more believable, but importantly, they were also 22% more memorable. Rhyming and alliteration has this sizeable effect on our perception. And this should come as no surprise. Rhyming slogans and alliterating copy is just easy to read. You could say, it's great to appreciate, it's no pain to retain. And yet, all of us try to make our communications more complex. We use tricky acronyms in work emails, unpronounceable medical terms on our fundraising pages, and incomprehensible technical language in our websites. We do this because it makes us feel more intelligent. Yet Richard suggests that it has the opposite effect. Keep listening to hear why simple language won't make you appear simple. As many of you know, I have just quit my job to go full-time on Nudge. But prior to that, I spent my career working in startups. And startups aren't easy. It's long hours, small teams, tiny budgets. It makes marketing hard work, but it doesn't have to be. HubSpot for startups can help grow your business without growing your stress. Their all-in-one platform connects your sales, marketing and support all together. So you can increase your leads, you can fast track your deals, smooth out support and join a platform that more than 190,000 top brands trust. HubSpot also offer discounts for startups on their top-rated customer platform and not the type of discounts that barely make a dent. So if you're ready to boost your marketing without breaking the bank, look no further than HubSpot for Startups. To see how much you can save, visit hubspot.com startups. There's a common theme connecting the biases that Richard has shared so far. Making your message simple to understand, boosts believability, memorability, and trustworthiness. It doesn't only work with rhyming or alliteration, it works with words that are easy to visualise. Here's Richard to explain.
1: There is a wonderful set of studies by a Canadian psychologist called Ian Begg. So he recruits a group of people, 1972, and he reads out a list of 22-word phrases. Now he's randomised the order of these phrases but some of the phrases are abstract, like impossible amount. Some of the phrases are what he would call concrete phrases, uh, visualizable, tangible things like square door. Reads out the list of phrases, then asks people to recall as much as they possibly can. And his key finding is that people on average remember 9% of the abstract phrases. They remember 36% of the concrete phrases. So we are four times more likely to remember the concrete than the abstract. Begg's argument is vision is the most powerful of our senses. So if we can picture a word, if I say square door, what pops into your mind? You know, a picture of a square door. If that happens, it's sticky. But if we use abstract terminology, it's like impossible amount or basic truth. It's There's nothing that you can picture, and therefore it's very, very forgettable. Now, that is a phenomenal finding because of the scale. Now, we're not talking about a five or a 10% improvement. This is a fourfold increase in memorability. It's one of the, the biggest impacts you can have in terms of making your copy memorable. What he would argue is it's fine to have an abstract objective like security or trust or, or quality. But when you communicate that, you have to translate it into language that is visualizable. So, an example of that happening in practice, a lovely example comes from the world of iP- um, iPods and MP3 players you go back to the launch of mp3s and what most brands like philips or samsung did or sony is they would launch their products they would try and convey the abstract ben- benefit of memory but they would use abstract terminology like 256 megabytes of memory completely forgettable now compare that with apple what they did with the ipod same objective of conveying the the storage capacity the memory but they instead translate that abstract concept into something that is visualizable. A thousand songs in your pocket. You can picture a pocket, it's sticky, it's memorable. That's what every advertiser should be trying to do. Think about your objective and then how can you translate that into concrete visualizable language.
0: There's a temptation to talk in abstract terms, saying 500 megabytes or 5,000 pixels or 500,000 impressions these terms, they make us feel smarter. By using technical terms, we feel more intelligent and we feel the listener will perceive us as more intelligent as well. It's why buzzwords are shared unashamedly in corporate meeting rooms. Touching bass and taking it offline makes us feel smarter than simply saying, let's talk about that later. Not only is this language less memorable, like Richard says, it also makes us seem less intelligent. Evidence for this idea comes from the Princeton psychologist Daniel Oppenheimer. His paper is titled, Consequences of Erudite Vernacular Utilised Irrespective of Necessity. In other words, the problem with using long words needlessly. In this brilliantly titled paper, participants read samples of text including graduate school applications, society dissertations and translations of the work of Descartes. Some participants read the original version, which is written in a jargon-filled style with complex words and verbose phrases, while others were given an edited version, where the unnecessarily complex words had been switched out for simpler versions. Finally, the psychologist asked the participants to rate the intelligence of the authors. Here's the thing. Contrary to conventional belief, those who read the simplified versions scored the author's intelligence as 13% higher than those who read the more complex text. Using simple language actually makes us seem more intelligent. Yet most of us fail to realise this.
1: What's noticeable over the past 20 years, I think, is more and more brands, maybe especially business business brands, or especially things like finance, these serious subjects, they are becoming more abstract, not less abstract. Um, so, perversely, as an industry, I think we are moving away from the uh, ideal way of communicating uh, and and by becoming more abstract, becoming more forgettable. Um, it, it really is an area that I think Steve Jobs was brilliant at. Um, someone pointed out to me recently, Gillian Wrightford, I think it was, in, in, in South Africa, that it wasn't just the consumer ads that Jobs made, uh, concrete he did it in his presentations as well. So when he had these giant uh, events that he would launch new bits of tech, he always looked at trying to make a really visual demonstration of the power of the the new offering. So there's a famous one, I think it was the MacBook Air, which was super thin. Uh, It was something like 1.9 centimetres thick at the widest part, which is about half the the thickness of the competitors. Now, rather than just communicating that on his stage lecture and talking about all these stats he begins by doing that and then he walks over to his table that's next to him and he just picks up a manila envelope one of those office envelopes uh, and he pulls out the um, uh, the mac air it's so thin it even fits inside one of these envelopes that we've all seen floating around the office and so let me go ahead and show it to you now you know he talks about how it's so thin it can even fit in an envelope And you can hear the intake of breath amongst the audience. He's realised that just giving the people the statistics will not create lasting memories. What he needs to do is think about a a visual demonstration of of the same point. This is the new MacBook Air. And you can get a feel for how thin it is. And I think we as marketers could learn from that, both maybe in our communications in our press ads our tv ads i think also maybe when we think about pitching when we think about one-to-one uh, communications and one-to-one persuasion steve
0: jobs wasn't just a clear communicator he didn't only use visuals to boost memorability and simple language to improve how he was perceived he was also funny and comedy like rhyming like alliteration like concrete phrases can dramatically improve how your message is remembered and believed and yet comedy is significantly underused.
1: We've talked a bit about some of the ways in marketing that there are well-researched ideas about the power of rhyme, the power of concrete rather than abstract messaging, uh, that were researched 50-odd years ago, yet are used less now than they once were, which seems a bit of a mistake. The other area in that the advertisers don't use enough of is probably comedy. So there was some wonderful data published by I think it was Cantar, where they looked back at the proportion of ads, and they looked at thousands and thousands of ads, the proportion of ads that tried to amuse people. And it dropped from something like 55% early 2000s, late 90s, down to about 30% three or four years ago. You know, A long-term consistent decline in comedy. Now, that's problematic because there are loads and loads of studies that suggest that if you communicate... In an amusing way, it boosts memorability. If you communicate in an amusing way, it boosts um, your your stature and some of your qualities as a brand. So there's a lovely 2007 study from Bitterly where he gets people to make presentations for a fictitious company called Visit Switzerland. And two people make presentations. Some people see a presentation where it's pretty factual about the great hiking and the great mountains, the other people see a presentation where it's the same script, but they make a single joke about it's great mountains, great hiking, and the flag is a big plus. <laughs> I find that quite amusing, but it's not exactly uh, side-splitting. It's not kind of Perrier award-winning comedy. It's a very simple joke. When people then rate those two presenters, the person who makes the joke is seen as five percent more competent, and there's thirty-seven percent increase in their perceived status. So it's not just about embedding your message in people's minds it's also that if you are humorous it conveys many positive values about you as a person or you as a brand so yet again we have this discrepancy between what the evidence would suggest marketers do and what they actually end up up doing now there are a number of different reasons about why this might be the case um Dave Trotino has um, blamed uh, award ceremonies. You you have these global award ceremonies. You'll get an international panel judging ads. Um, The problem with that is that visual communications um, and design are universal. Comedy can often be very, very specific. Wordplay can be very specific to the to a a specific nation. So uh, international panels awards panels tend to award um, design and visuals over maybe linguistic wordplay and the problem with that is that agencies are very keen to win as many awards as possible because that's a great way of drumming up new business so there is an argument that you know yet again there is a discrepancy of interest between the agency and then the the underlying marketer
0: the frostie's ad which i shared at the beginning of this episode it didn't win any awards of course it didn't It was largely despised with people like me lamenting it for just being stupid. And yet it stuck in my head for years and years. And I'm not alone. 34% of my LinkedIn followers said they remembered that ad, which is fairly impressive for a UK-only TV ad that only aired for a few months way back in 2006. Of course, at the time I assumed it stuck in my head because it was a silly song with a catchy tune. But now, I know that it was doing something else. It was combining rhyme, alliteration, concrete phrases, and even a bit of humour to drastically increase memorability. Look, I wouldn't recommend anyone copies this ad, but its unashamed use of these principles explains just why it was so memorable. And it still lives on in the minds of so many of us today. Two years ago, YouTuber Max Foss tracked down the original Frosty's Kid and his video interviewing him has over 300,000 views. Vice, Lad Bible, and The Sun have all done in-depth interviews with the Frosty's Kid almost two decades since the ad originally aired. Clearly, this ad has stuck in the minds of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of Brits. Not because it's creative genius, but because it leveraged some fairly basic cognitive biases okay that is all for today i wanted to say sorry if you're anything like me that ad will haunt you for years to come potentially even decades to come so i'm really sorry about that But fortunately, you will have another episode of Nudge to listen to next Monday to take your mind off it. So if you want to hear that nudge before anyone else, make sure you sign up to my newsletter. Just head to nudgepodcast.com and click newsletter in the menu. You only get two emails a week, one from me on Monday announcing the episode and another from me on Friday with a behavioural science tip. You can unsubscribe at any time and it's totally free. I want to give a massive thank you to Richard Shotton for coming on the show. His book, Illusion of Choice, is fantastic. And his first book, The Choice Factory, is probably the book I've spoken about most on this show. So if you haven't read them, go and check them out. I've left a link to both in the show notes. Thanks again for listening, folks. I'm Phil Agnew. You can find me on LinkedIn and Twitter. It's more fulfilling than fudge and we don't hold a grudge. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nudge. Oh wow, that was rubbish.